amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hi, everybody. It's Rose Parker. And today we're doing something new here on Psychosis Sensitivity. This week I interviewed author Michael O'Grady, a man who developed early onset schizophrenia at age 15, but went on to graduate from Princeton and earn an MBA and work in the mental health field and mental health industry. He wrote the book Schizophrenia, Princeton and Park Avenue to describe his journey of schizophrenia, working as in mental health pro, as a mental health provider and advocate, and also as a businessman in the healthcare field and his journey as a father of two young women. Michael O'Grady, I think, is a good example of living with schizophrenia, but also thriving even with symptoms. I think he's a great example of a disability elder and that we have a lot to learn from people like him. Now, unfortunately, the audio is a bit dodgy in this because I was working for software that was new to me and that I didn't really understand. So I will have to talk over myself in the recording because it didn't pick up well. It sounds really weird. Um, but I hope you will enjoy his parts and get something out of this. So let's go. Uh, do you do you want me to just log it, Rose? It's a it's a pleasure and honor to be here today. Um, to share some thoughts with you and uh, your your followers, I guess, if that's the right word. Um, but uh, I, I think what, uh, what, what the gist of what I can say today is to talk a little bit about the episodes of illness I've had, what my recovery was like, and how, um, how I believe firmly that with hope and persistence and a lot of other factors, people can lead very successful, productive lives, even with very severe mental illness. And uh, I, I know that I know the sad reality is that that's not true for everybody with this illness, but I do think it's possible. And I think that's the message I, I really want for people to hear. Um, so, having said that, let me launch into a little bit of my career history, and then I'll get into some of my episodes of illness, and then uh, some recovery issues. Um, I uh, yeah, graduated from Princeton. Well, let me let me go back. I, I had my first break when I was 15. That was a sophomore year of high school. And it was very severe. Uh, my mother told me later that uh, the doctors were uh, ready to throw away the key and that um, they had little hope for me. But um, my mother told them, no, don't do that. He will have the ego strength to recover. He does have the ego strength to recover. So, um, but I came out of that illness and had a very successful high school career, um, was a student body president, uh, scholar athlete awards, and got into Princeton and Harvard. Um, so I went to Princeton. Um, uh, in Princeton, I had a couple of uh, severe breaks, one right after freshman year, which was, I guess, two or three weeks in the hospital and pretty well managed. Returned to, to Princeton that fall and with no gap in service, if you will. Um, two years later, I was the, was ill again and uh, was um, 
I wasn't really hospitalized that time, but I was very severely disabled for a while and uh, wound up leaving Princeton for half, almost a year, really. And uh, that was uh, the, the kind of a real downer for me to, to have lost, lost um, track, if you will. All my friends were graduating ahead of me, and it just wasn't a great time for me. Um, so that's, um, and, and then episodes after that, like I came out of Princeton, went to work in the mental health field, uh, I was trained in family therapy. Uh, back in those days, you could work in mental health uh, with limited degrees, let me say, in the sense that we, um, I started as a what was called a mental health technician at a, at a community center, and we, uh, we ran activities. And as we got better, we were trained by psychiatrists. I went for training in, at Albert Einstein College of Medicine for, for, for family therapy and continued my progression in therapy with patients in those settings. Uh, then uh, went over to uh, New Jersey and Division of Mental Health and Hospitals where I was had a very, very rewarding and successful career for five years where I, I ran a new states, a new states initiative for, for uh, standards for all programs. And I had one point, I think I had something like a thousand folks working on that program. Um, and uh, But also got me in touch with a lot of the consumers were involved in that program, that sentence. And I got to be good friends and talked a lot about the issues of disclosure and everything else. So, in a nutshell, that's sort of um, some of the background. Then after after that, I um, I ran a halfway house for 13 years, very successful, and then uh, went on to um, consulting work, pharmaceutical work, all kinds of crazy business aspects. After I'd gotten an MBA from from a college in New Jersey, so um, I know that I'm trying to keep that a little bit short. That that whole section. Because I think that what I do have to add a lot is is that um, psychosis is very debilitating when it occurs to you, and you need to recover from it quickly. But then you can bounce back. So, um, Rose, did you have um, any particular avenues I, I should explore at this point? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, I think, um, I my, think audience my audience would be really interested. So here I'm asking him... If he has anything to talk about advocacy he's done or any work that he um, just did on the state level, um, things he did in the family therapy. And if he did any advocacy on the state level or or even nationally. Yeah, sure. Um, 
uh, it's a broad. Uh, I, in terms of advocacy, when I was the state division of mental health and hospital, I, I, I was one of the few, if any, people working in our central office who had exposure and experience to community mental health. Everybody else was state hospital focused, and I continued to push the. I would go out. People, it was it was a funny deal because you know our state people would go out and cite agencies for oh you didn't have a treatment plan last Tuesday and we wanted that by Wednesday you know things like that and and I would say no time out they don't need to do that that's not going to help the patients uh, and I I did some things that were were really uh, different I uh, I remember once I went up to this agency in uh, upstate from where we were and. Uh, the patients in that in that day hospital, they, they call them patients. I don't like to use the word patients, but anyway, uh, the, the the individuals in this program said, "Hey, you're from the state. Can we meet with you alone without the staff?" And I don't know what to say. I, I had never heard of this being done. So I said, "Well, sure. Let's go talk." And what they told me was very interesting. They told me that every morning, the, the water in the coolers was recycled from the day before with soap in it. And I said, what? And, and I knew they were trash in the state, the new, new bottles of water. I, I, I went to the director. I said, listen, you're either doing that today or you're closed by tomorrow. And I had no authority to do that. <laughs> but they believed me. <laughs> I called the, 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 the higher-ups in the state, and they said, what? They couldn't believe it was happening. And so, but that got fixed. So that's a, that was a positive outcome of advocacy, I think. But... Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I worked a lot with families. Um, uh, you know, I was trained in family therapy. And uh, there were some very sad cases. And, you know, um, we, I mean, from all different ends of the spectrum, you know, um, I don't really want to talk too much about it, but it, it, was, it was, you know, we did what we could. And, you know, Back in those days, in the 70s, you really had limited armament to, to, to fix the problems that existed in those situations. We tried, we did, but it, it, was, it wasn't always successful. Uh, so I remember one, you know, one young man who was a Vietnam vet and uh, had other trauma in his life, and he, uh, well, anybody today would look at that case and say, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, of course, you know? Well, in 1977 or 78, that wasn't invented yet. We didn't have that diagnostic class. And it doesn't make a difference to treatment. He would have been treated very differently. So uh, that's... Uh, um, I'm trying to think any more about advocacy in the words of advocacy. I... Uh, when I ran the halfway house, I, I, I had... I was pretty firm about certain things. Um, and, and I coupled it with my street knowledge, if you will, sometimes. Um, one of the big things, we couldn't have somebody, we were right on the grounds of a church, and we were, it was a really very tough community relations problem. But we, we, we wanted to say it was never a problem. But um, I would tell every prospective resident, I said, you know, because they'd be violence in their history, and I'd say, hey, um, are you going to be violent here? And they'd say, oh, no, 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 we'd never do it. And, but that, to me, wasn't the question. To me, the key question is, I'd say to that person, I'd say, well, do you think somebody else could be violent to you? 
which was much more revealing and people, but it gave me then the opportunity to say, hey, that doesn't happen here. Nobody ever hurts somebody. If you ever feel that somebody's going to hurt you, you come to us. Because that's what's the precursor to somebody lashing out, is they feel they're going to get victimized or hurt. And so we learned that. And it was just, it was just kind of a street knowledge. You're not going to find that in a psychiatry book, but it worked. Interesting. So. Did other people in the mental health field who worked with you know you had schizophrenia? So here I'm asking if other people who worked with you knew he had schizophrenia. No. I suspected my boss knew, but nobody else knew. Okay. Okay. Um, um, so we're so here, we're here, we're here to, to promote your book. So I'm asking him here about sharing, if he wants to share stories from the book and what the takeaways he wants people to have. From the book, but, I, I think there's a bunch of things well. that I would like for people to get. Um, there, there, there's a section that, I, a, a chapter, I would read for a second if we can. Oh, of course. Uh, of course. Um, where is it? i got to pull it up again. But it, it's, it's actually truncated on the website. But um, but it, it's called, okay, I just have the now, called Escape a terrorist camp and find hope. This is honestly the only that story I wrote in 1989. I it is exactly as I wrote it then. I would carry that story from computer to computer to computer. This operating, I still have. This is still as I, as I wrote it in 1989. And I was in a hospital. Uh, this is when I was with the Division of Mental Health. I was on the verge of a major new initiative, uh, and this happened to me. Um, but uh, I, I, my wife and I had two young girls, two and five. I was just she didn't have it. She wasn't working, so we had no income. If I didn't get out of the hospital and get back to work, we were in major trouble. And I am totally psychotic. Uh, I believe that fully. And it's a, if you know what a delusional feels like, I had the delusion that I was in a terrorist prison and that I was never going to get out. And that's where my my, my, my my whole being was. So let me, let me read you. Um, so this is about, this is this point in, in, a, in, in a stay with delusions and psychosis where you kind of are beginning to let go of the delusional piece, but you're not sure yet. You still have it, but you haven't jumped to the to back to the old reality. And the old reality might be very scary. I mean, because the scared... I've just walked weeks, are they going to take me back? All those things go through your head. But anyway, it was a dismal day. The room was bleak with so little encouragement. I laced my shoes as I had so many times before. Had it always been this difficult? It was so much more difficult than I could remember. It was maybe seven, ten days since I had last run. I was a big runner at the time. Far too long. Was it the medication or the thoughts that made it so hard? The hooded terrorists were not at the end of the hall today. Maybe they would let me survive. The thoughts were less of spies, demons, and terror. Perhaps my sanity was returning, and I laced my shoes as always. Dressed in sweats, I knew I would not run very far. The walls of the hospital told me that distance would not matter today, and so I ran in place, one foot above the other. The love of my wife helped me to start. My two young daughters kept me going. My brain was beginning to return. And so I ran as long, as fast, as hard as I could. Nothing was real for now. The memory of 13 miles was so far removed. 
and yet the memory of it had told me to try again. It was six minutes when I stopped. My heart and soul wept. Neither brain nor body was right. I prayed in a way I never knew before, not knowing why or for what. And yet the answer was so clear. There had been triumphs long past and a time without effort or pain. There had been a time to run far and fast, but now I could not do it. Not now, not again, maybe never. Casey had missed and the mine owned John. Six minutes of nowhere, six minutes and no hope. But then, as sure as tomorrow's bell, the answer swept through me. Next time would be seven. As I dried my tears and wondered when the delusions would leave, I knew. Tomorrow could be more minutes, the next day more, and soon the minutes would have a distance. I knew the memory was real and that it would stay with me forever. I knew the three reasons I could run it all were with me now. Yes, my brain would heal. The tears now filled with hope and reality eternal. I had just run the most important run of my life. The road ahead was still where I had always been. So that, that, um, it's very emotional to me to read that because one of the things about that that, 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 that that I've shared with a few other people is that in that space of a few minutes, I can feel the worst moment of my life and the greatest moment of my life to be that, how should I say it right? That, that so, so distance from life, reality, and anything hopeful and then to find the hope again was just amazing. So it's it's why I've kept that. I, I, I take talk of that as my cornerstone to the book. It's um, it's why I think it's uh, important for people to remember, no matter where you are mentally, there is hope for it to get better. And that's all. Very simple. Very simple message. Yeah. I, 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 so I I comment that I had a similar experience in my recovery uh, pivoting moment where I felt at my, at my darkest point, but then yep. I felt it couldn't get worse from there and that I was beginning to pivot upwards again. I, yeah, I don't think, I, I think that is the heart of recovery. It's when you turn this corner of, I mean, I'm not going to get better to, hey, maybe I will get some better. I will get better, you know? That's to me is the crux of recovery. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, for, I know for, for me, me it, was it was a sense reaching my lowest, lowest point, point but then more discussing of the reaching the lowest point and finding your way to climb up. In the book, if I might digress to the book, there are some much lighter passages than that one. You know, there's there's one passage uh, I know my uh, one of my relatives really likes a lot is uh, uh, I used to go to this bar in, in New York City right on Times Square, uh, and in the book it's called Timmy's Corner. Well, that's not really the name, but in any event, uh, I used to hang out there a lot. And I, one afternoon I'm there about four thirty, and these two young studs come in, dressed in leather, beads, gold bandanas. They were the scariest looking two kids I think I've seen in a long while. They sit next, a little bit next to me. Now, I talk to everybody there. I talk to anybody. And these guys are sitting next to me. And I, I, 
I haven't said a word to them. I, I'm scared to, I'm afraid to say a word to them. So finally, I said, well, this is silly. I've got to say something to them. So I lean over and I said to the two of them, I'm there in my suit and tie. I say, listen, next time, a suit and tie, please. <laughs> and they laughed. They had a grand old time. But, uh, you know, you, know you, you, you can't forget that even with this illness, you can't have fun and live life. Agreed. 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 You know, and, and then, you know, it, it, you know it, 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 it's a belief almost out there um, that this is all consuming. You know, that, that you don't have a life. You can have, you know, but that's not true. It really isn't true. So, but, uh, you know, the uh, another story I like in here where I, uh, I call it Teach an Elephant to Dance. And um, this is probably the, the first, the, this is, I, I say everything in the book is true. This one's quite not true, but I'll say it anyway, because it's a fantasy. I always, always thought about my Princeton career as, I wouldn't talk to people about it, because my first thought was always, hey, I lost a year, I was ill, I lost my, my standing, I didn't go to keep the same track, you know, et cetera. So I felt something ashamed of it. Like and it was a stigma-induced issue, and uh, so I'd always do, go and and I, I came to realize in this story is I, I came to realize that that was the elephant in the room. Now, wait a minute, is the elephant in the room? So, so that's always a, a, a big management thing. You know, talk about the elephant in the room. That's the thing we don't talk about. Well, so I said in the book I talk about how the elephant and I got to be friends, and we tried to play games together. We played soccer and stickball. And he, he wasn't very good at stickball, so we, we finally decided between us that we would do dancing. And I'd teach the elephant to dance. And he, he kind of got along, and he did his one step, two steps. He was a little slow at it. You know, but, but we got along with that. And uh, But I say in the book, I came to realize elephants don't care what people think. They don't care if they if, where they went where they were two years ago. They don't care about that stuff. You know, they don't care about stigma. They don't have that problem. So I, I, I learned that from the elephant that, hey, maybe I don't have to have that either. So so I, I concluded by saying, you know, I I taught him to dance, but he taught me how to live. So it's just a, a, it's another, another roundabout take on some of the same subject. Yeah, I think I relate with my own experience feeling stigma for taking two years off of undergrad and having to fight through the feeling of being behind and having and having failed for changing my course and graduating quote-unquote late. Yeah, but you know, I, I, I really believe, I know with me, let me say with me, I won't, I won't globalize it, but with me, it's not coming from other people, it's coming from me, you know, and we have to deal with that I think somehow better. You know, it's, it, it's us that makes us feel like we're stigmatized. Not, I've told people, I was on a phone call at Princeton the, the two, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and this one guy, Mark Swanson, who's a very prominent physician out in Reno, Nevada, he's done everything all his life. He said, Mike, you did this? Let's talk about it. So, you know, it's, it's I don't know, I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard. It's a very tough subject. But you see it in the media. The media still stigmatizes, you know, you know. Yeah. 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 But, you know, but it's, 
But uh, but and just just one one last passage from the book because I I think it sort of it sort of sums up a lot of what I'm trying to say. It's I call it concluding thought, uh, and that deliberately didn't say thoughts because there's one thought, <laughs> not many. <laughs> What I've learned so much about loss, sadness, and rise and stigma, I've learned far more about hope. Hope is not about outcomes or results. Hope is about creating a belief for the future. Grounded in optimism, hope is based on doing the right thing one day at a time, today and tomorrow. Hope is our salvation in the worst of times and our, and our inspiration in the best of times. The greatest thing about hope is that it's time-worn companion Discarded easily, but found again effortlessly. Hope emanates solidly from our souls, hearts, and minds, and is the breath of our life. Our deeper dismay is to be without hope. Hope for myself is a thread throughout this story, and as a high school student, I dreamt of doing the impossible. I set up to do so, and it remains to be seen if this was only a delusion. I've met so many wonderful people once this time, and I believe that in the work I've done, I may have made a difference. I'm grateful for all of this. Perhaps more importantly, I found a faith in God I never thought possible. I know His loving and forgiving presence that we all that we, that we can embrace. I rate, I sincerely hope that you enjoyed the few stories presented here. And most of all, may we, most of all, at, above all, may our hope never die. But it, 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 it's a complicated subject, mental illness. It really is. But, it, it, but it's also simple. You know, it's a disease. It's a brain disease. I believe firmly it's a brain disease. I don't know if everybody subscribes to that notion. And uh, it's treatable. It's treatable. You can manage. I don't think we do a good enough job helping people manage their own illness. Yeah, the mantra becomes either take your medication or I won't deal with you. And that's not a, that's not how it is. There's I, lots I of, agree with you. I am agreeing here. I'm talking about the benefits of psychotherapy and holistic treatment and and just more patient-centered care. Also access to health care in general. Um, as you all know, I'm very for therapy. I don't think there's enough access. I don't think there's enough holistic access to care. I'm 100% agree. Yeah, I, I, I think all of that, even the, the psychoanalysis, <clears throat> I personally am not a huge fan of that, but the people who can use and need that, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I think you have to be a, I think you have to be able to use that. And I'm not, that's, I guess that's really where I'm at with that. But, but everything else, I mean, my God, jeez, uh, it's, uh, and, and I don't think that the disease is, is understood to the degree that it needs to be in the sense that many, many psychiatric patients need much more than just psychiatric care. They need housing, they need living, they need work, they need so many other aspects that get disabled by the disease that need to be addressed. I saw that in the halfway house I ran, my God. <coughs> but, um, 
Rose, what else can I t tell you about? <laughs> um, um, I'm asking if he has more stories from the book he would like to share. I'm curious about that. Sure, sure. Well, um, what happened? What happened with? Uh, uh, I opened this hospital. Oh no, I'm sorry. Here, I asked about his professional career. I'm sorry. I asked about more from the book later. It was a psych um, behavioral health hospital. It was alcoholism and psychiatry, and I was director of quality for that. Hospital went down. Hospitals didn't fare well financially. I went to a parent hospital and did kind of internal consulting. And then I, I got into uh, hospital consulting. I applied to a lot of different places and I got a job through a contact, a little, little bit of help there uh, with Arthur Anderson, which is one of the big five consulting companies. And for them, I did, you know, consulting, at least as I understood it, you, you met with a client you listened to what their problem was, and you basically found solutions to solve their problem. Doesn't that sound like mental health? <laughs> you know, I'm being serious. I mean, it's it's like it's like the steps are very much to building a treatment plan for a patient or for 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 for, 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 for you know, whatever um, for a resident of a halfway house. So. And, and, and then you, you just had, a, I think what helped me a lot was having insights into people. Um, so I did that. I did that for um, many years. And that was that was great work. I, I, I did things like, like um, there was a, a cardiac device that that the, the management of that device wanted to know how was it used and how could it be used in the future. It was really just doing the whole process mapping and, and working it through. So I was pretty good at it, and I did well with it, you know. Um, I probably wasn't always good at, at sales, which which is what you needed to be good at in that world. Uh, and then I went off on my own, did other things. I um, did negotiation training. I did uh, clin clinical trials. I did a fair number of clinical trials in the sense that I would... Um, um, put together these what they would start up 70, 80 people in, in a major meeting to figure out how could this go well and smoothly. So I, I don't have to ask, it was just a series of steps of, you know, you know, what I learned from daily therapy as well as all of my work in psychiatry is that people process was very important in business, you know. So, yeah, um, yeah, and and again, um, you know, you sometimes have to be advocate, be an advocate, and sometimes you have to step up and do something that, gee, I really don't want to do, but I'll do. <laughs> you know, there were, there were times in a project where somebody's not doing their job. You have to deal with them and say, no, you're not doing your job. Get out of here. Get out of the way. <laughs> you know. So here I ask him what advice he has for young people suffering from schizophrenia and psychosis and if there's anything he would say to the families of young people, to the parents of schizophrenia and psychosis. Um, 
first of all, I, I, I guess my first starting point was you can't have a global statement for them so easily. I guess number two, man, and this is so hard for some of these young guys and young women, is you have to take stock of where you're at. You know, I think medication is a huge issue because <coughs> medication does help and you don't want to take it either. So navigating that issue is a very, very important thing. And then I think they have to be, you know, they have to relax, be willing to accept help. How you get a young person to do that, I don't know. But um, those would be some of the things I can think of right off. You know, get them safe. Safety is a major concern I have nowadays, especially when you read some of the stuff happening in the world. So I keep them safe from themselves and from others. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that gets lost sometimes. You know, um, but, you know, and, and I would say to the parents, as difficult as this may be, they're your child, you're going to stand by them, and that's okay. You can stand behind them. This idea years ago of tough love doesn't work, I don't think. Um, you know, you have to do what's safe and good for him and your family or her and your family. So that's not so easy. So it's, it's educating the parents of being strong but being loving and being caring. And, and, and safety is a big issue. You know, don't ever put somebody in your house that's not safe. You know what I mean? Things like that. So... Um, I, I, I don't think that many folks, like remember I talked to, I don't know if I talked to earlier about the, you know, the rule we had, how I evaluated dangerousness in the halfway house. Well, parents need to do something similar and evaluate that, you know. Um, so, there's no great answer. I mean, I have, I have a relative, uh, in fact, uh, the father provided a very nice quote. Uh, and I've known this young guy for, he's not young anymore, he's probably 50 now. Uh, and, you know, it's just, you just gotta, you just gotta, it's, it's a long journey, and you gotta be willing to ride it out, and that's as best you can do. And I think it does get better sometimes with age in the 50s and 60s, but it's, it's a long road to get to that. Yes, yeah, so I would, big advice would be, you know, just relax, be patient. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a child who has this kind of disease. That that aspect can be taught. So I get him get him involved in some of the support groups. You know, um, so. Uh, but I I, I I think you almost, I really think you got to judge it by the family and the individual's position. Yeah, there's caveats and general stuff, but man, until you know what they're up against, you you, you really just don't know. Okay. okay, thank you. Is there another there passage? passage? So here I ask if there is one last section from the book um, you'd like to read. There's probably a couple that are a little bit long. Um, what kind would you like? Would you like a mental health story, a funny story, or? Um, just, just whatever, just whatever he feels whatever like. Shows your personality, your personality or, 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 or personality, or the book, the, whatever he feels, will get his point across better. Whatever you feel, will get you across better. 
Okay. Um, okay. Then, then, then we might as well, this is a slightly longer. I, I was, I was going to tell you about the swing batter batter, but um, which is more of a comical book story. But I would, I, I would jump to the give the devil his due, which is. Give the devil his due. This this is a, an episode that happened. I'm going to say three years ago. So this is like I'm in my late sixties now, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, seven, eight, age of sixty-seven. Um, and I begin. This story begins in fantasy and crosses a line into psychotic delusional thinking. It struck me that at the age of sixty-seven, the thinking would have been resolved. Age had not resolved this type of thinking. Um, my wife had been diagnosed with cancer five weeks earlier before this Wednesday night. She was at home in hospice care. We all knew the end was imminent. Everyone but me took a breather and, breather and took, left for an hour. So now I'm home alone with my wife, who is very end-stage cancer. Uh, this was a significant time for me. It was precisely the same time that my last drunk, exactly one year earlier. I was sober and as ready as ever to face the events and grief that were sure to lay ahead. I did not know at that moment what was to come. I fed my wife's beloved pup and proceeded to take him out the back. When we returned, it seemed as if my wife was not breathing. I felt her pulse and and it seemed like there was none. Uh, Brady was by her side, and I stood motionless. Thirty-three years of marriage lay dead in front of me. Something then happened that shocked me. I had a sudden feeling of pure anxiety. I was panicked. I'd never had panic in my life. Never. I stood there, wanting to run and get help. Not really for my wife, but for me. I felt unbelievable terror and fear. I wanted to move to do something, but I simply could not. My life past, present, and future was fueling the fear. I had known such things in smaller doses in the past, but never with this intensity. I did not know what to do. I did, know what, did not know what was happening. This was unlike any previous death I had known. My mind, my body, and my soul were consumed. I came to realize that the issue was not a what, but a who. Now, this next paragraph, all is true, believe it or not, I'm gonna, that's an aside. My, my best friend came home in a box from Vietnam. I had to run the fields of Valley Forge walked the hills of Gettysburg, toured a little house in Amsterdam, ran through the tunnels of the Twin Towers, walked, talked with the voice of FDR, been with champions, Nobel Prize winners, and presidents, talked with clergy, sinners, patients, and healers, sat in the back of a B-17, walked above the Arizona, and sat in a Navy jet. I saw the devil's work in all these places. I knew his methods, and I knew how to fight him. That the run at my wife was a sucker punch. The devil was trying to steal my wife's soul from our very home. No, sir. I had fought the devil on the wrong side of a Thorazine injection. Had seen its monstrous work at the bottom of the barrel. I sat, I sat in the front of a suicide night for weeks, and my brain had deserted me for months several times. I ran from 20, mile 22 to 26 when I could not run anymore. We made great game winners via a wedge over a Grady, 
and Princeton's thesis was written in eight days. Through it all, I kept my soul. As I felt the overwhelming fear, fear I summoned everything at my command. I reminded myself of the bravery, bravery evident in American history. Never did I need it more. Put quite, quite simply, did not lose to the devil. Never have, never will. The devil knew he would never have me, but he thought he could get my her. With Brady at my side, now sound asleep, I began the fight. When you're dealing with the spirit, earth-based time is not relevant. I had to suspend my th my, any thoughts about time. I did that. My fears were overwhelming me, so I reached back to every thought and feeling I could muster of people in fear acting bravely. Equipment and punch, counter-punch, matters little in a fight with the spirit. The devil knows the punches and counter-punches far better than I could ever know. He can move glibly from past to present and future and then back. Acting bravely with the might of a will is where you begin. You learn very quickly that gain and loss do not matter. What does matter is righteousness. The devil is evil personified. His domain is the very worst the humanity can dish out. Even then, I'm using a male pronoun here. The devil is without sexual form. He's a spirit of presence. The counterbalance to his work is an equally fierce counterpresence. He is real nonetheless. To fight the devil, you need to have to be brave, to act without fear, and to command an extremely strong sense of justified righteousness. You must take the high ground in a setting with neither road nor land. You must take God's strength and power into the fray. Above all, you must be principled, all in, and truly embrace the Spirit of God. I did all those things, but it was never quite enough. Finally, I looked the beast in the eye and let him know that he can he can only have what I let him, no more, no less. And finally, I told him that this is that this is our house. It is an American house, built on righteous good will and soul. I looked him square in the eyes and said, "He's gone. You are not to take the soul. The soul. I fought him that day, and he sure and he left without his soul." The overriding thought was, that remained was, no, sir, not on this watch. So this devil story is part of a delusional thought process. I go on, I don't have it in the book because I didn't, almost too embarrassed. Uh, you know, I wanted to call the president and Secret Service and everybody else to, to warn them about the devil, which I didn't do, thank God. <laughs> but but that, that, that's the story. That's, and I, I guess the only, the only, the only, the only, the only point from it all is that sometimes this illness doesn't go away, even in your 60s. You know, it, it, and it can come back. So. Yeah. Yeah, for many yeah, people. people it, it is. Yeah, and I talk about how many people, it doesn't go away, even in old age. And we talk about how it's a good example. You can live a fulfilling and happy life, even with schizophrenic episodes. Schizophrenia isn't an antithesis to having a life, marriage, and a family, but you still have your schizophrenia, he was married, he had kids, he had a career, he still had schizophrenia, he achieved, but he still had schizophrenia, achievement schizophrenia, yeah, I would say that, thank you, but yes, and that, I think that is the point, is that, is that disease, this disease may not go away, but you can live with it. Thank you, Mr. O'Grady, once again. The book is Schizophrenia at Princeton and Park Avenue. And I do apologize for technical issues. Oh, no problem, no problem. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, yeah. Sorry for the technical issues and all of this, guys. But that was Michael O'Grady with his book, Schizophrenia, Princeton, and Park Avenue. And I hope that you will check out his book. I hope you enjoyed hearing from him. The end of that was just niceties between us. And I'm running out of time on my podcast software. So I'm going to cut it short. But I hope you'll check out his book. I hope you enjoyed hearing from him. He's a nice man. So yeah, please go support him. And I will talk to you all later. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.